0: Hi there. I know you're accustomed to seeing me behind a lectern on a stage at the Deltona High School, and we'll go back to that in just a second, but I wanted to introduce this message. We had some technical difficulties on Sunday, and about the first five or six minutes of the message was lost, uh, the audio and the video, and so I wanted to introduce this message for you and, and take the opportunity, by the way, to thank our tech team that does an amazing job every Sunday videoing, recording, editing, including the PowerPoint slides. Without them, none of this would be possible. And this is the only time I can remember in the four years we've been in existence, something like this happening. So kudos to you guys. Thank you for all you do for the kingdom and to enable our ministry to go well beyond the walls of of the Deltona High School. Um, So the message on Sunday was called A call to care, faithful church leadership. And I know that may sound like a boring or a bland subject to a lot of people. Maybe it doesn't excite you. It doesn't sound very engaging. Um, But when you consider the alternative, uh, maybe it's more electrifying. Um, Unfaithful leadership that abuses, harms, and betrays God's people, God's sheep. Um, I want to read seven names to you. And we'll have the PowerPoint if you're watching by video. These names are probably gonna be familiar to you if you've been a Christian for very long. Um, Events happen in the lives of each of these men, I think just within the time span that our church has been planted. Um, These are men with big names, big ministries, big churches, many of them are published, they've written books, I've read their books and been helped by them. They're uh, docket speakers at big church planning conferences and so they've had a, a very large impact on American evangelical Christianity and so many of them won't be strangers to you. The first one is Bob Coy. He stepped down from ministry in 2014. Perry Noble was let go from his church. Andy Savage was let go from his church. Bill Hybels resigned six months before he was intending to because of um, a scandal that happened in his church. And then there's Mark Driscoll, same story. Tulian Chivijan, same story. And finally, Darren Patrick, same story. Uh, And what happened to those men was adultery or abuse or extortion, some kind of a moral failure or scandal, uh, maybe extramarital affair or being in a compromised situation with a minor, greed, lust, power, control issues. All of them have their own story, and it's tragic. It's tragic. It saddens my heart to read their names and put their... Um, put their pictures up no doubt it saddens and grieves the heart of God and I'm not doing it to triumph over a man's failure I'm doing that because that's an object lesson for me as a pastor Um, I could have picked 20 more people that this has happened to every single week in my inbox it seems like I get another name of a a big name maybe celebrity pastor that has a lot of impact and influence in American Christianity and they have fallen for one reason or the other, um, and wh- what makes these men unique is they're Protestant evangelical pastors. They're not uh, Roman Catholic priests. That's another scandal we could talk about in another message. They're not heretics. They're not televangelists who are selling prayer shawls and trying to get you to donate uh, a seed money so that they can fund their private Lear jet and fly all over America preaching for Jesus right these are men who honestly we could probably sign off on their doctrinal statement of faith Um, some of the core beliefs we could sign off on them we could agree with them these are men who people were saved under their ministry they had at one point a clear vision to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ see people come to faith build them up in the faith send them back out into their communities to impact uh, unchurched and unbelieving people with the gospel Um, But something happened along the way, Um, and the one thing that most of these people had in common was this. There was an unhealthy and unbiblical and therefore a dangerous and toxic form of leadership in their church uh, for for two reasons. And I'll tell you the first one, and then we're going to pipe you back into where we picked up on Sunday. The microphone started working again. The first one is this. They had either forgotten, abandoned, or neglected the whole idea of shepherding. What does it mean? to be a called man of God and and to keep watch over the flock of God. It means that you are a shepherd. That means you're tender, you're compassionate, you're empathetic. It doesn't mean that you're like a, a type A, aggressive CEO, power broker, alpha male, mach, macho, beat your chest. Um, it's not. The church is not a business. It is an organization and an organism both at the same time. So structure is important. Management is important. Um, But those are two distinctly different things. And I think when we lose sight of the fact that God has called us to be a shepherd after His heart first and foremost, and then His people, it's inevitable when we neglect that, um, that the kind of thing that we're seeing here can happen. And so here's the second thing. We're going to pipe you to the the audio and the video. Where was I? Somebody help me. Secondly, okay. Secondly is plurality. God never intended for a church, even a church this size, to be led and managed and shepherded by just one man. God never intended that. And when men do that, when they're at the top of this big pyramid, you know, and they're all alone, that's too much. That is overwhelming. All right, so the idea of plurality. Um, a lot of these men put themselves at the top of a giant pyramid where they had very little, if any, accountability. They were overwhelmed. They did all the counseling in some cases. They did all the preaching. They did all the preaching, teaching. They made all the decisions. They called all the shots, and they did it all by themselves. And many of them would put that like a feather in their hat, a badge of honor. But listen, that is not God's intention. It's not the pattern we see in the New Testament. And it's not safe. It's not healthy. It's dangerous. It's bad for the pastor, solo, singular pastor, elder, shepherd. And it's bad for the people, it is. It, that is a recipe for disaster. It's inevitable that an implosion like this happened when the leadership structure was in place that was in place. And I've, and I've researched this. That was the case in, near, in pretty much all of these. And others that date back all the way to the 80s and 90s that I said many of you won't even know those names. Why belabor the, bo- the point and um, kick a dead horse? So there are very clear and repeated instructions in the New Testament about who elders are, what they do, uh, why they do it, and the accountability that should be built in. And and just about every instance that the word elder, presbyteros, is used in the New Testament, it's in the plural, always. And that should tell us God intends for a plurality of men to lead His church. Now look, when I say lead the church, there are many women who are in leadership positions here, and there should be. There should be diversity, uh, there should be... We should recognize the gifts and the talents that God has given this church. And I try to be very careful because of the culture that we live in uh, to teach this. There's only one thing that women cannot do at this church. And it's, and it's filled the position of an elder. Anything else they can do. Because I believe the Bible teaches that and demonstrates that. That's why I want women to help serve the Lord's Supper. That's why I want women to come up here and read scripture. That's why I love it when women pray in the church. They should be doing all those things. That's a gift to us. We have many, many gifted women that serve in so many ways. Women who are competent to counsel, who are fulfilling burdens in our church, many of you that don't even know about. Uh, But elder is resigned Reserved, excuse me, reserved for men only. And, and another message, I'm going to talk about those qualifications. But I just wanted to toss that out there if any of you are confused or wondering about that. Why I keep saying the church is to be led and managed and served by a group of godly men called elders. But every time the word elder is used, in the New Testament, just about without exception, it's in the plural. Meaning there should be more than one. More than one. Paul and Barnabas, after they went on their circuitous route in the book of Acts preaching the gospel, building up churches, planting churches, they would circle back around and it says they would appoint elders, plural, in every city. That's a part of God's plan for the church is for elders to be put in place. Not for one person to be calling all the shots, making all the decisions, doing all the preaching, doing all the shepherding. That's overwhelming. And that's why at some point implosions happen because they're inevitable. So that's all over the place, that, does, that idea of a plurality of elders who shepherd They're not type A alpha power brokers that just charge all alone. Um, but we see that in many places. One of the places we see it is in the passage we're going to look at today. It's in 1 Peter. And look, I'm a pastor. I try to keep my finger on the pulse of what is happening in the church at large in the world. And I believe that this is one of the biggest problems that we face today, is that churches just either refuse or they're not taught about what leadership should look like. Listen, God didn't leave us to grope around in the dark and say, you're getting warmer of how I want my church to run. You're getting warmer. Listen, Jesus is the head of the church, and he has left us clear instructions on what leadership should look like. And I think when you see that, it's one thing if you just don't know. It's another thing if if you see it and God has gifted you with qualified men, you just continue to go down this path of the pastor charging solo. Uh, But in many cases, that's what happened. These men came from large churches. Many, I'm sure there would be many qualified godly men, and in some cases there were, there were elders, but they just weren't functioning like elders, and I want to show you and teach you what that should look like today. So, um, let me show you a couple of other slides here to just back up what I was saying. Here's one. This is Titus, chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is writing to Titus. He's he's Paul's protege, like Timothy. Timothy. And he's telling him, hey, look, I'm writing this letter. This is why I left you in Crete, which was an island in the Mediterranean, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Do you hear that call there? Elders, it's in the plural. Paul's saying, Titus, we planted churches together, but there's still one thing that you need to do to make this complete. You need to go around and appoint elders. Alistair Begg said this, Paul made it plain to Titus, that things were not in order in a church until proper leadership was established. And then check this quote out. Most unsolved problems in a church life can be traced back to defective leadership. Amen. Wholeheartedly amen it. I've seen it. In some cases, I've experienced it. That's God's will for the church, is to have a plurality of men called elders to lead. Um, let me show you another passage here and, and Don't get the wrong idea. A lot of pastors quote this um, frequently and repeatedly because of what it says at the end, I'm worthy of double honor. I'm quoting it for a different reason, even though that's true too. Let the elders, Paul is writing his other son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, let the elders, see that plural? You don't don't see it if, if you read through it really fast. Every time this word is in the Bible, it's in the plural. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then he says this, comma, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now that tells us that the, the main teaching and preaching pastor and elders, uh, there's, a, there's a significant honor given there for what they do. But it also tells us this, there are some elders who, guess what, they don't labor in preaching and teaching, but they do help lead. And that's why there's a word that I want to introduce today, and I'll tell you more about later, it's called lay elders, these are men that might not necessarily have a degree from a seminary. They may not have necessarily graduated from a Bible college, but they have wisdom, they have skill, they have integrity, and they have experience that the church needs, that honestly, that the, that the lead elder, the lead pastor needs. And you see that pattern set out in the Bible, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in another message. I just want to plant that idea. When people think pastor and elder, they usually think of somebody like me, I'm on the payroll. This church cares for me and you do very well. My wife and I, my family feel so loved and taken care of by you. You're a very generous, sacrificial and giving church to the extent that I don't have to hold down another job. I'm not a bi-vocational pastor. Have you heard that word? It means I have two jobs. I do this and then there's my day job during the week. And and if I did that, I would do it gladly because I believe God's called me to do this. But you guys have taken such good care of me, I don't have to. I'm able to devote all of my time, attention, energy, and focus on shepherding this flock of God. And I am grateful to you for that. But when I talk about lay elders, there are other men that you're not going to compensate them uh, financially. And they didn't go to seminary. Some of them may have. That's great. That's a bonus. But they have jobs like plumbers, electricians, engineers, carpenters, teachers, lawyers, some of them doctors maybe. As long as they meet the qualifications we're going to talk about in another message from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and here in 1 Peter 5, uh, they're qualified. And that's something that a church should gather around them, pray over them, ordain them, and appoint them. Um, Is this making sense so far? That's, that's the New Testament's idea of what a plurality of elders looks like. I think when a church says we're going to wait until five men that are seminary trained show up and then we'll appoint elders. No, you're not looking at it the right way. There's a lead pastor, and he should be the most competent person, I believe, in the Scriptures, maybe even having some Greek and Hebrew training if, that's, if, if the church is capable of giving him that training. But there's other men that just have godly wisdom, skill, experience, and wisdom to come alongside and help this man shepherd and to provide this, this care, this culture of care in the church. So that's what those two passages talk about. Um, one of the things that an elder is helping provide oversight and care for is the lead pastor. Guys, I'm just being really honest. I want this to come home today. When I look at those seven men that fail, and I hope none of you showed up thinking, oh, is he going to confess something? No. Yeah, I'm going to confess. I just have need of men to help me. You know, there's no scandal, you know, praise God. Because if not for the grace of God, there goeth I. I'm not any better than any of those men. They all set out, probably with the same vision and ambition that I have, uh, to honor Christ, to build up the kingdom, to shepherd God's flock. None of them set out and said, you know what? I think I want to scandalize the church and, uh, and bring disrepute on the good name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, cheat on my wife, exploit church funds, get caught up in a sting operation with children, you know, none of them probably set out to do that, but they drifted and they drifted. The leadership wasn't in place and it happened. So this is just, to me, it brings it home to me. I want help. And we have godly men in this church who are qualified to, to help me and to meet that role. And I want to appoint them. We're in our fourth year. And I think it's time for us to move forward with this, especially since other things are on the table. We want to be in a building. God has big plans for this church. And I want to be a part of that plan. And I want this church to be here long after I am. And that's why we need to start taking these steps now to ensure there's going to be solid leadership in this place uh, for years to come. Amen? So, I told you a long introduction, okay? And we're going to get in the text. We've already been in the Bible technically a couple of times. We dipped in. But I'm I'm moving toward 1 Peter here. When you look at those men that we looked at earlier, and, and again, I'm not going to go into detail, um... Some of their stories are just haunting to me. And, and I want to read some of the quotes and some of the interviews that was in the aftermath. After those, after those men were either terminated or resigned and stepped away, what was, what was left behind? Um, one of the pastors we looked at earlier stepped down after multiple claims that he engaged in inappropriate behavior with women in his congregation, including employees, and it was behavior that spanned decades. Now, just wrap your mind around that. Some of these men were able to lead secret, private, scandalized lives for decades. For decades, meaning what? They weren't that well-known amongst their flock. There weren't a group of godly men around them that provided accountability, care, that asked them hard questions that pastors should be asked. Listen, I will tell you this right now. If there's a man leading you in the pulpit... And he can't be questioned, then he can't be trusted. You can take that to the bank. Tell me that I said it if, I, if you ever need to quote me on that. If there's a man preaching and leading that can't be questioned, then he can't be trusted. He shouldn't be. Because listen, we're not infallible. You know, I'm not a pope. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not the head of the church, okay? Jesus is. I'm his under-shepherd. I'm not the chief overseer of your souls. Jesus is. Um, and, and we'll get to that a little bit later. It's interesting. Peter wrote this. And you know... Some people believe Peter was the first pope and he called himself just a fellow elder. I'm just a fellow elder. I'm just a sheep like you, you know, just one of, your, one of your fellow leaders, that's all. But this pastor who stepped down after behavior spanning decades, initially his leadership team and the staff defended him. They called the allegations false and they accused those who made the allegations as being Liars. Um, and they tried to move forward, but then more women came forward, more allegations came out, and they couldn't control it anymore. So, along with a lot more evidence, by the way, too. So he eventually resigned, along with the team who defended him. And a staff pastor that was left behind, trying to pick up the pieces, said this. Here's a quote, okay? We are sorry that we allow the pastor to operate without the kind of accountability that he should have had. We believe that his actions with these women were sinful. We believe he did not receive feedback as well as he gave it. And we believe he resisted the accountability structures that we all need. Well, that's true, but they didn't provide those accountability structures because they didn't have a group of godly men that they called elders that were functioning as elders. And that's why, one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons that, that that happened. Another pastor was fired for, quote, violating his duties as a pastor. His church had this to say in the aftermath. Listen to this quote. Our pastor has a history of ongoing sinful behaviors over the past few years. I mean, again, that's what stands out to me. How how does this kind of thing happen for years, for decades? I mean, there's supposed to be a group of godly men around me holding me accountable, praying for me, asking me hard questions, providing care for my soul. See, I'm providing care. I'm hopefully providing care for you. But you know what? I need to receive care too. And it's a care that not all of you can give me. But there's a group of godly men called elders that God intends to provide that for one another. Mutually, right? But he goes on. um, Ongoing sinful behaviors over the past several years, including manipulation, domineering, lack of biblical community, and a history of building his identity through media and ministry platforms. Adultery was not a factor in his termination. They wanted the congregation to know but we are looking into inappropriate interaction with two women. So see, a lot of these things happen. The accountability is gone, and there's just a freedom that I don't think God intends for there to be there. One of those pastors, known for his teaching on marriage, I mean, the thing that put this guy on the map was his teaching on godly marriage. He resigned after confessing to a moral failing. Two weeks after his departure, a staff leader said this, Our pastor committed adultery and sexual immorality habitually through pornography as well habitually again there's a history here there were there were years that's one of the tragic things about this is all the warning signs were there if there would have been a team of men a a plurality of elders in place to help these men um but, but it wasn't it wasn't there here's one more quote okay at one church a leader left behind gave an interview and he said this i often hear people say i miss my pastor so much I feel like he really knew me, to which I reply kindly, Have you ever spoken to the pastor? Inevitably, they would reply, No, he high fived me at the church party last year, but we never actually met or talked. This is so often the life of a mega church pastor. They are surrounded by people, yet nobody knows them. Nobody knows them. We think we know them, but we only know what they show, and they don't show everything. Do you hear the th- a theme in those interviews and statements? What is the theme? no accountability private lives just a history of in some cases manipulation that's what's really sad uh, to me and this is this kind of thing is devastating one of the reasons is it's what i hear i'm a church planner i talk to unbelievers all the time and you know one of the things i hear over and over especially with de-churched and unchurched people is you guys they're like come come to a church come to a church they're like do you see the news bro do you know what the scandals that are going on in the church? And very often they don't differentiate between Protestant and, and, and Roman Catholicism, but still, they're like, bro, you guys have more scandals than secular businesses do. Why in the world would I want to? Do you remember when David committed a, adultery with Bathsheba and the prophet uh, Nathan confronted him? You know one of the last things he said? He says, Because of what you've done, you have scorned the Lord and you have given, the phrase is this in the New King James you have given occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. That's another way of saying this, bro, the unbelievers out there in the world that are already skeptical of the church and of the leadership of the church, all you did was give them one more reason in their mind to not love, honor, follow, and obey God. That's the real tragedy here. Um, And I haven't even touched on the devastation of the congregations that were left behind. Let me ask you a question. You grow up in a church. Some of these leaders were there for decades. And the guy that's been teaching you about a godly marriage for the last three decades runs off with the secretary. What do you do? I mean, what does that do to your faith and your confidence, not just in the Bible, but in your, in, in your trusted leaders? Or you've sat under a man, and he's been teaching you about faithful, sacrificial generosity, giving, tithing, uh, providing help for the church to meet their needs, pay rent, pay the the salary of the workers there, and then all of a sudden, there's this scandal that busts. He's been stealing money from the church for 20 years. What do you do with that? Or the guy that's been teaching how to parent and how to love children, and then he's caught in some sting operation. I mean, that's devastating. That's terrible. And the sad thing is, a lot of that could have been avoided if people would have followed God's model for leadership in the New Testament church. I'll I'll tell you the truth. I don't want to cry saying this. I was studying this last night. I was up really late because it's a burden. It's a burden to read these things and to think, there go if I, if not for the grace of God. I prayed God before I ever, before I believe God is sovereign. He holds men and women's hearts in His hands. Every creature, whether visible or invisible, above the earth, below the earth, every animal, there's no maverick molecule. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. He's Lord. And I know, I know, in God's sovereignty, Um, he could have stopped some of these men from doing that. And you know what I pray? I pray, Lord, before you would ever allow me to do something like that, bring reproach on the name of Christ and do damage to the gospel message and shame my family, just kill me. And I mean it. I pray, God, you would kill me before you ever let me do anything like that because it would be better. I mean, the Bible says things like that, right? It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and take a long walk off a short dock, right? than for you to offend one of these little ones, one of these believers, a newborn babe in Christ, for you to just give them the wrong idea of who Christ is, what the gospel is, and what leadership is. I really did pray that. Okay, I'm coming to the end of my introduction here. <laughs> <clears throat> so a lot of people, they hear this, they see this, they're like, you know what, yeah. And so they say, well, what do we do with leadership? Who needs it? Church doesn't need leadership, we'll wing it, you know. Every man, woman, and child for themselves, you can't trust any of these guys. That's one extreme reaction. The other one is, okay, okay, you can't trust them, so you got to control them. So let's get a guy to be our pastor, and he'll be our little puppet, right? He'll be our back pocket. (laughs) We will control him, manipulate him. We'll micromanage. We'll put our thumb on him. We won't trust him. We'll give him just enough rope to hang himself. Listen, both of those are wrong. Both of those are wrong. In the middle, is the truth of what church leadership should look like. And God answers three questions for us in this, in this uh, passage. Short message, guys, okay? We're going to talk more about this in a later message. The Apostle Peter answers three questions for us in this, in this text that we just read. Number one, what do elders do? Number two, how do they do it? And number three, why do they do it? So just to show you, just so you can wrap your mind around this passage, okay? I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Number one, um, point number one, what do elders do? They shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Number two, how do they do it? They exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those on your charge, but being examples to the flock. And number three, why do they do it? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So that's the three points in this message. Point number one, what do elders do? They shepherd the flock of God. That's a word you find over and over and over in the New Testament. And it's interesting. I think most people know what a shepherd does, don't they? You keep watch over the flock. That means to look intently at a group of animals and to watch them, to care for them, to provide protection to feed, lead, and if necessary, bleed for the flock. That's what a shepherd does, right? That's what a shepherd does. It's interesting to me that there's a sheep analogy here. Have you ever really, have you ever really thought about that, that the Lord refers to His children, and that's you and me? We're sheep. We're little lambs. We're in a flock, that, that means we're, we're a group, we're together, and we require a shepherd. But listen, this sheep analogy is important. Of all the animals, <laughs> of all the, it's funny really, you'll hear. Of all the animals that God could have chosen uh, to provide an analogy of what we're like, he chose sheep. Do you know much about sheep? Do you know that they are one of the only creatures on, on God's green planet that can't find their way back home? Did you know that? If a sheep loses its way, and they do, habitually, repeatedly, right? Even when you correct them, they, they do. They can't find their way home. Bless their hearts. They just don't have the intelligence for it or the instinct. They can't. Don't ever take a sheep to Disney, okay? You lose that thing, it's gone. Um, now, I'm from Arkansas, and I, I'm just telling you the truth. Stray dogs, cats, all kinds of animals will come into our yard all the time. We could only care for so many. So you know what we do now? Don't you guys judge me. Don't you dare judge me. You know what we would do? We would take that animal on a long drive, not with a gun or anything, relax, okay? Usually with a steak or some baloney or a hot dog. We would take that dog on a long drive down the gravel road, throw some baloney out in the field, and say, there's plenty of wild game here. You can care for yourself. Because they can. Dogs are, are more resilient than we give them credit for. Oh no, somebody's walking out. They're angry. <laughs> and listen, I kid you not, the next morning, the next morning, you know who would be... <laughs> On the, that dog, it didn't matter how many miles away you drove. I grew up hunting rabbits. My dad knew that my brother and I loved to hunt. Uh, we loved hunting wild game, and he would take us rabbit hunting. We loved it so much. My dad invested in rabbit beagles. Not one, not two, not 10, 15. We had 15 rabbit beagles, okay? And we had trained them, and they were, they were awesome Uh, You know, the whole idea is a rabbit beagle, you go out in a cotton field after it's picked, okay, respect the farmer, and uh, they would get the scent of a rabbit and they would chase it and sometimes, you know, they were trained to make that rabbit circle around until you could get a good shot on it. And everything we killed, we cooked and ate, okay? But sometimes that rabbit would take them here, there, and yonder, miles away. And those dogs were so passionate about what God had trained them to do and instinctively given them the ability to do, no matter how how many threats, yellings, firing your gun up in the air, uh, they wouldn't come back. It would be dark, you would wait forever, they wouldn't come. But you know what you could do? You could leave an article of clothing right where you parked the truck that they you know, got out of the cage, unkindled. You could leave an article of clothing there, and you could leave, and you could come back the next morning, and they would be right there sitting on, they'd be tired, they'd be hungry, maybe a little bit angry with you, covered in cocoa burst, but they would be there. And all I'm saying is, uh, there's plenty of animals that have that kind of instinct. Sheep don't. They don't. They require constant care and oversight. Okay? They're not the brightest animals, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And even beyond that, did you know that sheep will eat poisonous plants? They will. They'll eat poisonous plants and they'll die. They need a shepherd to take them to green, healthy pastures, not toxic pastures. Did you know that sheep will see a running brook? And they'll try to make their way down there and drink from it, but the water's rushing so fast they'll flip over and they'll drown. That's why Psalm 23, it says, what? Make me lie down in green pastures and make lead me beside still waters. Sheep need still water, you know, not the white water rafting kind of thing. So they can't find their way home. They'll they'll eat toxic plants, they'll overeat, they'll overgraze, commit sheep gluttony, I guess, and they'll destroy their own pasture. And and here's the biggest thing. I thought about that this, this this morning. Sheep, if you think about it, sheep are an argument against evolution, because sheep are the most passive, docile, defenseless animal. Okay, they can't defend themselves at all. Easy pickings for wolves or any predator of any kind. Foxes, they sheep will just roll over and bat and die out, right? Uh, If you think about evolution, you can give yourself some time. I don't understand how that would work, right? I mean, how, how many times do you have to try it before? Anyway, the point is this. They need shepherds to protect them, to graze with them, to give constant oversight and care for them. And there's a reason why when the New Testament is talking about leadership and elders in the church, they use this sheep and shepherd analogy. Because sheep need constant care. They always need constant care. Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd's View, or something like that, of Psalm 23, and he said this. He said, The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. And you may not know this, but because sheep have this oily lanolin in their skin, Every, all things dirt cling to them, okay? If you don't shear them every year, they can die. You know, they, they can get so plugged up with dirt that they can't eliminate waste, and it's, a, it's really... I, did, I know more about sheep than I ever cared to know because of this sermon, okay? Sheep need constant care in, in a multitude of ways, and that's what God has called, in a similar way, shepherds to do for the church, to provide constant care, not because you're helpless like sheep, but because you require shepherding like sheep do, Okay? Um, many times at the heart of problems in the church, there's toxic theology. You know, there's books circulating that are very dangerous. And pastors are called to help their people, to teach their people, discern their people. Look, don't eat that. That'll kill you. Okay, that's bad. That's bad. Don't eat that. Eat this. Hey, don't go down to that white raging uh, water with the waterfall and the cliff. Don't go over there and drink water. Go over here. It's much safer and better for you. So the shepherd uh, analogy here, and that's what That's what Peter says. Look what he says here. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's just that interesting that he said, this is God's flock. It's not my flock. It's not your flock. This is God's flock. These are his sheep He is entrusting them to us. This is a a tall order. This is a very particular and special calling. And I tremble to think about it. That's why the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that yours will be the stricter judgment. I promise you, every teacher and elder, including those seven, when they stand before the Lord, there's a higher degree of accountability that will go with their calling. Because this is God's flock, and he cares about how they're treated. Here's something that's really interesting to me. If you read this passage, the one thing that stands out to me more than any other is humility. Humility. If you think about it, Peter was the first celebrity pastor. I mean, this guy cast out demons, raised people from the dead. He preached a sermon, and 3,000 people were instantly converted, baptized, and joined the church. I'd say that's a pretty good A-list of accomplishments, wouldn't you? But he did not consider himself to be head of the church at all. You know what he called himself? Your fellow elder. In Greek, you know what it says? I'm just your elder. I belong to you. Peter doesn't want this top of the pyramid. He's saying, look, uh, I am your fellow elder. We're all equal. Don't call me a pope. Don't put a funny hat on me. Don't call me father or anything else. I'm just Peter. Plain old Peter, okay? Um, I don't need that extra attention and honor. But he also says this, shepherd the flock of God which you are among. That's important, guys. When I look at those seven men that failed, I do not believe they're fulfilling what God is calling us to be and to do and where we go. We're supposed to be among the flock. You guys should all know me. If you are a regular attender of this church, I I strive really hard to do this. I try to know you, your family, your names, your children. Don't test me on that. And I want you to know me. We should mutually know each other. You should know about my family. You should know my interests. My, you should know, if you're in my home group, you do. You should know my struggles. You should know ways that I need you to pray for me and hold me accountable. Because I'm, I'm not above you. Listen, I'm a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep, okay? I'm not anything special. That's why, even calling me Pastor Tommy, I appreciate that. Um, I, I don't want to say much about that. I'm, I, Tommy's fine. Don't ever think that you're dishonoring me if you say, hey, Tommy, and somebody say, hey, it's Pastor Tommy, Tommy's fine. I love that. When I, was, uh, when I went to John MacArthur Seminary, you know, John, the John MacArthur, preaching, he's coming up on his 50th year of preaching. He preached on every single verse all the way through the New Testament, has a university, has a seminary. Um, he got his doctorate. Um, and, and I worked for him at Grace to You. And I remember he, he came in one day and he was walking out. And I mean, he's this hero and a celebrity to me. And I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, uh, Dr. MacArthur, uh, Pastor MacArthur. And he turned around and he said... Tommy, he said, call me John. My name's John. That'll do just fine. And he wasn't rebuking me. That really encouraged me. I'm like, man, you know what? That's a man that wants to, he wants to be among, he wants to protect himself from getting in a, an, a, being on this ego trip and having this elated view of himself that's unhealthy and unbiblical. So anyway, what do, what do shepherds do? Here's what Alexander Strock said. He wrote a great book on shepherding. According to the New Testament, elders lead the church teach and preach the word, protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray, and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. And then uh, this is a guy named Jeremy Ryan. He wrote a great book on elders that some of our men went through together. And this is what he said. Elders pastor a flock, teach doctrine, refute error, nurture the members toward maturity, Track down strays, govern and lead, and diffuse conflicts, to name just a few of their duties. That's what God calls shepherds to do. Um, So point number two. Point number one was what do we do? We shepherd the flock of God because we're all sheep and we need oversight, right? Point number two, how do we do it? How do we do it? This is interesting. If you're kind of a grammar geek or grammar nerd, the main verb in this passage is shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then there's this, uh, it's called an adversarial participle. That's just a fancy word. This is an adverb that modifies the main verb. Shepherd the flock of God. How do you do that? How do you shepherd? Well, the second verb here is exercising oversight. And there's three different little contrasts here that Peter is going to give us. This is how you do it. This is not how you do it, okay? So I want to use each of those together here. Overseeing them, this is the first one. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Number one, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. What does this mean? This means that you don't have to get a motivational speech every single day to get out of bed and and fulfill your calling as an elder, right? Right? It means this is not a duty to you. This is a delight. You are voluntarily doing this. This is your passion. You're eager to do this. You're happy to do this. Nobody had to bribe you. You're not in this for the money, right? That protects you from shameful greed and dishonest game. Um, in fact, did you know in 1 Timothy 3, one of the first qualifications for a shepherd elder pastor is this. It says this, if any of you desires the position of an overseer, an elder, uh, he desires a good work. You know what the first qualification is? Desire. You want to do this. You want to do this. You're passionate about this. It's, it's willingly. This is your heartbeat. Somebody doesn't have to bribe you. And listen, somebody just doesn't have to threaten you if you fail to do this. This is not about Skittles, getting Skittles and M&Ms, right? It's not about a carrot, and it's also not about a stick. Threats and guilt and coercion and bribery, that doesn't work because, listen, hard times are going to come. And when those hard times come, if you're only in it uh, because you feel this compelling sense of guilt or because somebody bribed you, um, you know what you're going to say? You know what? I'm out. This is too tough. I never wanted this in the first place, so I'm out. And that happens sometimes. So that's the first one. It says, um, willingly, not, not by coercion. This means you're passionate. This means begrudgingly fulfilling your responsibilities as an elder is not going to work. Um, And then here's the interesting part there. See if you can see this here. It says, as God would have you. That literally means in Greek, according to God. According to God. You're doing this willingly according to God. Well, how does God shepherd His flocks? You know, Jeremiah 3.15 says, and God will give you shepherds after His own heart. So He is saying, you are to shepherd my flock, my sheep, in the same way that God shepherds you. How does God shepherd us? Willingly, perfectly. Yeah, perfectly. I'll never, I'll never get there. Neither will any of our other elders. We're flawed men, but He does so passionately, lovingly, generously, sacrificially. He laid down His life. Doesn't it say that a hireling will flee when the when the wolf comes, but a pastor, will, a true shepherd, will lay down his life for the sheep. I was thinking. I was thinking about this last night. Do you remember whenever Peter denied Jesus three times? You know the third time he denied him, the rooster crowed? And it says something really interesting in Luke's version of that. It says, and when Peter denied him and the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at him from the courtyard. You ever thought about that? What kind of look was that? If you betrayed Jesus with cursing and blasphemy three times in a row, right after you bragged the night before and said, Lord, I'll never betray you, not even if I die, you know? And then the very next day, three times in a row, and it says Jesus looked at Peter. I've read that before and shaken and thinking, can you imagine God looking at you right in the eyes, right after you betrayed him, and you thinking, he must've, it must have been a look of condemnation, hate, disappointment, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was. You know why? Because Jesus restored Peter. Do you know whenever the angels were sitting in the empty tomb... Um, And the women, Mary, Magdalene, and the rest came. You know what the angel said? Go and tell your brothers to meet Jesus. He's going before them to to Galilee. And then it says this, and tell Peter. (laughs) And tell Peter. Man, it tears me up thinking about it. Tell Peter I'm not angry. I'm a shepherd to him. I'm going to restore him. I'm not going to judge him for this. That's already been taken care of on the cross. I'm going to restore Peter, and he's going to be a better shepherd because of this restoration and the repentance. Because it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He repented. He hated what he did, right? So if you're asking, how do you shepherd sheep like that according to God? How does God shepherd sheep? Listen, God's not a control freak, is He? (laughs) Was Jesus a control freak with His disciples? He sent them out in groups. He said, go and try this ministry thing, right? He didn't micromanage them. He didn't abuse them. It's really interesting. And I think that's the next point here. Let's see. Number two, uh, how do they do it? Overseeing them, not greedy for gain, but eagerly. Not greedy for gain. Listen, I don't need to so, say a whole lot about this. I think the, this speaks for itself. If you are in ministry because you, you want to fund your own private jet to Tahiti or whatever, right? Or shameful gain could, could apply to a lot of different areas. It could be sexual gratification even. Um, and he says, look, obviously that's not why you're in ministry. You are in ministry... Um, not for shameful game but eagerly what does that mean that means man you're passionate about this it's it's not about gaining anything it's not about what you get it's about what you give that's why elders serve they serve by leading and they lead by serving I've seen, this has been our motto from day one at grace life if serving is beneath you then leadership is beyond you you can take that to the bank if you think serving if you have to stoop you think ah, i don't know if somebody else can do that you're not a leader Because leaders serve, right? Let him who is first become last, Jesus said. In fact, that's what he says later in Mark chapter 10. I'll read that in a minute. So here's the third third answer to how. Overseeing them not as domineering, but as examples for the flock under your charge. Man, this is so important here, guys. Not as domineering. I'm seeing more and more and more churches that have these heavy-handed shepherds and elders. And they're, they're, they're placing their authority, okay? It's a God-given authority. They're, they're putting their authority in places it doesn't belong. They're t- telling people who you can hang out with, books you can read, movies you can watch, music you can listen to, people you can date, uh, places you can go. That happens in churches all the time. And it goes under the guise of, you know, biblical pastoral counseling. It's micromanaging, it's abusive, I believe, and it's damaging and harmful to sheep. Instead of training them, teaching them to be discerning, uh, no, this is domineering. Some of those pastors were let go because it says they had a history of bullying. I just, I just can't imagine. If you you know, and there go with I, if not for the grace of God, you're called to shepherd tenderly, humbly, lovingly, graciously, and, and yet you somehow you think you're a Buford Pusser. You know, well, you walk softly and carry a big stick, and you're beating the sheep up. Sheep up. What are people going to think about you? What are they going to think about Christ? they're getting their views and cues about who christ is by your leadership so those are the three things that he calls us to do and not do elders are not independent rogue agents we need accountability and we're to do this uh, with love with tenderness with gentleness here's another jeremy ryan said this a church should be able to direct a newborn believer to an elder and say do you want to know what a real christian should be like then look at him That's all an elder is. We're to be examples to the flock about what a kingdom citizen looks like and acts like, right? That's what it's all about. Um, And this is another thing. Melissa turned me on to this book. It's by Dave Harvey. It's called Healthy Plurality. And you're hearing this come up in the message, and I'm closing out, guys, I promise. Uh, What I really want to see here, when we talk about being examples to the flock, I want a group of godly men called elders to help me shepherd. And you know what else I want them to do? I want them to provide care to me. And I want to provide care to them. And listen, the Bible says that's supposed to be an example for all of you. I want there to be a culture of mutual care at this church. Listen, we need each other. This is a body. We're a flock of sheep, right? Not the most intelligent animals in the world. But listen, if we stick together and there's no strays, the wolves won't get us, right? There should be a culture of care here. Listen to this quote. So care is not a culture you assume. It's a culture you build. And it starts at the leadership level. And it starts with them reaching out, opening their homes, taking an interest, and loving those they lead. Then, over time, as we invest in creating a culture of care, rather than assuming a culture of care, a remarkable thing happens. We become the objects of care to others, even as we've been caring for them. That's Dave Harvey. So, point number three, why do we do it? Well, that's Built into the text there, it says, and when the chief shepherd... That's the same word for shepherd, but it's got arch in there, okay? When the arch shepherd comes, we will get this unfading crown. Whenever you would win an Olympic competitive event, in biblical times, they would give you a wreath for like, ta-da, here's your trophy. Cowboy, here you go, put it on, enjoy it. It's made out of flowers that'll last you about two days. And then they'll die and wilt and fall off. Uh, But he says, no, when the chief shepherd appears... See, that's why elders do what they do. For the chief shepherd... And not just for the crown that's unfading. You know? We're going to throw that back at his feet. That crown represents the victory that he has already secured for us. Because listen to this. Excuse me, listen to this. The chief shepherd is the shepherd who actually became a sheep. Isn't that astonishing, the incarnation? We're about to celebrate that in Christmas. Jesus was a shepherd and he became a sheep. God incarnate. God became a human being, crawled inside human flesh, subjected himself to time, to a fallen planet, to fallen people, walked outside the city of Jerusalem, stretched out His arms, and hung on a cross for us. He's the shepherd who became the sheep that took away the sins of the world. He was slaughtered for us, slain for us. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could experience the grace, the forgiveness, and the peace of God. And that's why shepherds and elders do what they do. We do it for Jesus. He's the example to us. We're just the under-shepherds.